Good evening. Welcome to the Get Off My World Doctor Who debate series. Our proposition today reads as follows. The 1960s Doctor Who serials, The Web Planet, and The Chase deserve their bad reputations. Defending the proposition is Professor Hrupta, Chair of Interplanetary Media Studies at the University of Vortis, and author of the upcoming book, Larvae, Guns, and Acid Pits, Gender Normative Semiotics in Post-Feminist Zabi Cinema. Do you have a publication date yet, Professor? Very soon. My sensitivity reader is currently checking the final draft for any unconscious animus. And here to oppose tonight's proposition is... um, I'm sorry, what was your name again? Daleks have no name, just functions. And your function is... I am an Oxford-style debate Dalek. Oxford-style debate Daleks. Argue and persuade. Argue and persuade. That's good, Mr. Dalek, because you're at quite a disadvantage tonight. We polled the audience and discovered 79% agree with the proposition that the web planet and the chase deserve their bad reputations. 9% are undecided, and only 2% disagree. The winner, of course, is the debater who convinces the most people to change their votes. As always, we begin with opening statements. Professor Hrupta goes first. Thank you, Mr. Moderator. Before I begin, allow me to say it is an honor and a privilege to share the stage with such a distinguished opponent. Flattery from inferior beings is meaningless. Cut to the chase. Ah, see what I did there? The chase. Laugh or you will be exterminated. This seems an excellent time to remind the audience that we have confiscated Mr. Dalek's gunstock as a safety precaution. We wouldn't want a repeat of last month's debate, all Doctor Who is canon. Like I told the talking penguin, books are not canon. Any Gen X piss ant who says otherwise can pack up their Faction Paradox comics and join Lawrence Miles under whatever bridge he currently calls home. Please, allow me to oblige my esteemed colleague's request to cut to the chase, which is, by far, the least successful Dalek story of the 1960s. Including the Peter Cushing films? Grand Moff Tarkin is not canon! Let us put a pin in that for now. Ah, a pin, Cushing. I see what you did there. In the chase, the once mighty Daleks have been reduced to mere comic foils. Even their signature voices, grating under the best of circumstances, are played for laughs. Dalek voices are not grating! I beg to differ. Say, Zarbi. What? You heard me, Mothra. Say, Zarbi. Very well. Zarbi? Too easy. May I remind you, Mr. Dalek, that you are not here to affirm the proposition. The Monoptera have more grating voices than Daleks. You are here. I have a new proposition. The web planet sucks balls. I agree. The web planet, despite its ambitious attempt at world building, fails to live up to its 
potential world building? Are you kidding me? It's literally a half dozen chorus girls dressed like picnic ants fighting mimes dressed like bumblebees for six fucking episodes. If that's world building, someone should tell George R.R. Martin he's doing it wrong. At least I never got my ass kicked by Herman Monster. At least I never got my ass kicked by a kitchen pest. At least my entire race was never wiped out by wasps. Audio dramas are not canon. Who made you the one Dalek Council of Nicaea? Stop referencing Big Finish or you will be exterminated. Mr. Dalek, please, there is no need to shout. I am not shouting. This is my normal speaking voice. Perhaps we should move to closing statements. Perhaps you should shut your inferiority hole. In closing, I would like to make one thing very clear. While both the web planet and the chase are problematic, the web planet is far and away the superior of the two. I thought moths were attracted to flames. Not lies. The set and camera work alone. George Malise called. He wants his mise-en-scene back. Your interruptions shall not deter me. Maybe this will. I will not be intimidated by a plunger. No. You will be aggravated. Ow. Alex, irritate and annoy. Irritate and annoy. Irritate and annoy. This is usually where I would invite the audience to vote on the proposition again. But much like Chris Chibnall's era of Doctor Who, we appear to have lost all our viewers. I am left with no choice but to do what returning showrunner Russell T. Davies will most certainly do. Forget any of the preceding nonsense ever happened. In the meantime, please do enjoy the podcast. And don't forget to join us for our next debate entitled Ogrons, Super Racist or Just Normal Racist? Get off my world. Welcome to Get Off My World, a podcast dedicated to all things classic Doctor Who. We're going to take you through five rounds rapid on topics as varied as the web planet and the web planet, but also the chase. I'm Joshua. I'm Kelvin. I'm Ariel. And I'm Pat. Our first round today will be a new round that we're debuting here called 
the answer to the first question in which we take a question from one of our listeners and answer it. It's pretty straightforward like that. The question today comes from one of our longtime listeners, someone who grew up listening to this podcast, my son, Aaron. And he wants to know, I think mainly because he wants some dirt on me, what is the most we have ever spent on Doctor Who merchandise or related items? Hmm. I'll go first because I'm going to go backwards in time and say the most I ever spent on Doctor Who was $29.99, which today would be like $65 because this was in 1989. I spent that much money and I deliberated for maybe six months because um, at a local comic shop here, Comic City, sitting on a shelf way up high behind the cash register was a VHS tape of The Five Doctors. And I believe I've told the story in the podcast before that our local Channel 2 did not buy the rights to play The Five Doctors. So during my peak nerddom as a child, I never saw The Five Doctors. I'd read the novelization over and over again. And I just kept seeing this VHS tape sitting there and sitting there. And finally, I think I got some money from some relatives and I popped down the money to make a long story slightly less long. I was really disappointed by doctors the first time I saw it after spending years and years with the novelization. So ultimately, it just encouraged my love of literature. I would like to continue from that uh, mode, Josh, if you would let me. So, you know, as a as a child, I was super into watching Doctor Who on public television, but I was also into reading the novelizations by Terrence Dick and Malcolm Hulk and the others. And the very first one I ever got, this was not my own money, this is my mother would have bought these books for me, uh, was the novelization of Day of the Daleks, which uh, picked up probably from Walden Books. And there was an American edition of 10 Doctor Who novels that were a few John Pertwee, but mostly Tom Baker novels. And when mom had bought me all of those and I had read all of them, I was like, oh, are there more? And then someone told me about Uncle Hugo's Science Fiction Bookstore, which existed in Minneapolis at the time. It's no longer there for reasons. So my mother took me to Uncle Hugo's Science Fiction Bookstore, and there was just a wealth of Doctor Who novelizations that I had never seen or never heard of before. And so that sparked a several years long quest to buy as many Doctor Who novels as I could. And then when I lost interest in Doctor Who kind of in late high school, I gave all those away to someone. I don't even remember who. And then, Josh, in the late 90s, when you got me back into Doctor Who again, I started buying them all again off eBay and <laughs> everywhere else I could find. Everything else at Uncle Hugo's, and I probably spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars, including on several books that uh, were very difficult to find. I probably could not even find them now if I tried. So I, I can't even tell you how much money I spent to buy Doctor Who novelizations twice. And some of them are as difficult to read as they are to find. That's the bitter irony. <laughs> well, since we're on the subjects of books and childhood, I'm going to say that it, it might be a little bit of a tie, depending on if you're looking at like over a week or a one-time purchase and whether you're talking about something I purchased or something that was purchased for me. So 
I became a huge Doctor Who fan just a couple of years before it went off the air. I mean, my dad and I used to watch some of the older episodes together, but I really fell in love with it when Ace appeared because I was like 10 and 11 and I very much wanted to be her. And then I just was glued to it and watched my VHS copies of those episodes over and over and over and over and over uh, after pirating them off Channel 2. But I spent many years just brokenhearted that it was no longer going on. And then one day I was at a bookstore and noticed that in the same place that there were all of the Star Trek novels and there weren't any old Doctor Who's because those would have been at the used bookstore. But suddenly there were these new adventures, these full thick novels that involved Ace and and Benny Summerfield. And within a week, I had like scrounged every penny out of my house and bought like 20 of them at once. So none of them were a singular purchase, but altogether, I would bet you I spent at least $100 on these books. However, if I think about the biggest one-time purchase, I think my father made that for me when he became a member of Channel 2 simply so that I could get the disappearing TARDIS coffee mug. (laughs) And when you put the hot liquid into it, the TARDIS would disappear. And when your beverage cooled down, the TARDIS would reappear. And I kept that thing until I was like 33. I think it finally just stopped working. It was just disappeared the whole time. There was a faint white outline of the TARDIS if you looked really close and believed really hard. But uh, <laughs> the master and the Ronnie could never do your coffee consumption habit did. Indeed. indeed. <laughs> now it's my turn to, uh, uh, I guess, sound like a big leech. I, ne- I never bought all that much Doctor Who. Most of the Doctor Who stuff I got was either like given to me for free or something I, I, I just picked up somewhere. I don't remember actually going into a store and buying a lot of Doctor Who stuff. I remember buying Doctor Who stuff as a gift for someone. <laughs> I remember buying uh, a 2VH set of The Ark for Josh for like Christmas or his birthday or something. <laughs> I remember that. This was back before DVDs, you know, in in uh, when the Peloponnesian War was going on. And, you know, I, I remember looking through his collection and, like, the arc seemed like the biggest, longest Doctor Who story he didn't have. <laughs> you know, I, I never really bought the episodes much because I, I just kind of knew, like, oh, it's always going to be on TV. Our friends of mine are going to have the DVDs. I can just borrow them if I really wanted. And, you know, I, I just kind of cheaped out like that. But um, it, it might be just a T-shirt. Uh, I was going to say, you own a lot of nerd t-shirts. Yeah, it was probably a t-shirt uh, I got from Leanne Freeberg, who who makes like t-shirts and bags and is uh, a vendor at a lot of local conventions. Uh, and it's probably the t-shirt of like the top of the TARDIS. And instead of police box, it says, just be kind. And that would have cost uh, probably about 20 bucks. <laughs> Worth it. Worth it. Yeah. You guys, now that you're bringing up clothing, I realize that actually probably the most money I spend was to make the ace costume to wear when I was pregnant for when I did one of my first podcasts with you guys at Convergence. Yeah. Because I had to pay somebody to tailor that to my giant, swollen, pregnant body. (laughs) And now is our inaugural discussion for our Bad Reputation episode we're going to talk about the second season william hartnell episode the web planet written by bill strutton directed by richard martin and broadcast in 1965 this has a lot of insects in it and some very smeary camera work so i think it's 
it's not going too far to say that this one doesn't rank highly in the annals of Doctor Who fandom. It doesn't. Even among really, really hardcore fans. So we're here to discuss whether it deserves its bad reputation or whether we're going to kind of rehabilitate it in some way. So I, let's discuss. Well, one I of the will... things I noticed when I was looking this up is this is one of the only shows that didn't have a soundtrack created for it. It used stock music. And that pretty much sums up how I feel about this thing. It, it's <laughs> something that just like, oh, well, this is the script. So let us go through the motions of this script. And I wondered, in fact, if perhaps the camera work was smeary because the cameramen were so bored that they got themselves covered in butter and went wrestling while leaving the cameras on. I fell asleep during this episode. The smeary camera thing was an intentional cinematographic choice uh, that they did to make the planet look alien. Yeah, I always really liked that. I thought that was a cool, inventive idea on an extremely low budget. I That's what I say about all of the web planet. I thought the direction was actually quite good, in my opinion, up until the last couple episodes, then it felt like they gave up. But earlier on, I felt like there was a lot of tries to make their set seem bigger and more expansive than it really was. A lot of creative angles, a lot of variety. I think the Monoptera swooping in to attack in that whole sequence because they did a lot of rapid cuts instead of a lot of slow lumbering fights where two monsters just swipe at each other very slowly. It had some uh, visual interest to it. And then by the end, I think they must have been on a time crunch and they just gave up. And it's a lot of Monoptera and Sarby walking slowly into each other and bumping against each other and falling down with the exception of one of the most violent scenes in Doctor Who I I can think of is when the Monoptera picks up the larva gun, adorable little creature and just smashes it flat against the wall and kind of lets it drop down as if it's smearing down the wall. That was surprisingly visceral despite the fact that you knew that the guy who was crawling on all fours just slipped out of the costume (laughs) picked it up and they smashed the costume against the wall but it it was really effective well and speaking of costumes i mean i totally cosplay as a monotra anytime i want the action figures so bad i'm kind of charmed by the web planet in a kind of a similar way you would have watching like a children's christmas pageant You know, they've got the, the cheap costumes and they're really trying and it, they're just sort of adorable. You know, it just, it felt kind of like like a pantomime type show for me. And, and I personally kind of appreciate one of the comparatively few Doctor Who attempts to make extremely non-human aliens who were not evil. They yeah. hired an artist, a mime artist, to do the choreography for this. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I could kind of tell it was sort of fun that way. Um, I am <laughs> also extremely charmed by the web planet. I'm not going to pretend, look, that this isn't the dumbest thing in the world, right? But practicing <laughs> yeah. and radical acceptance right now. And I feel that it's best to view it as a sort of expressionistic children's theater, like yeah. you're suggesting, mm-hmm. than as adventure television. Josh, you're totally right. It looks simultaneously incredibly cheap 
and also sort of like it costs a fortune. There's like a real <laughs> lot of stuff going on right there. It feels like there's a lot of sets and costumes. I, I feel that the Vaseline smeared lenses, it, they weren't really Vaseline smeared, but I feel that that didn't really work probably for the overall benefit of the show, but I could see what they were going for. And that's kind of the keynote for the entire web planet. The actress's arm acting was some of the best acting. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 <laughs> um, where she was Barbara. pulled, where she was pulled to and forth. She we used to do these exercises in theater where you were supposed to lead with a different part of your body. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, and we'd have to lead with our shoulder. What and I was quite impressed by her wrist acting. Can, can I interject an irrelevant uh, anecdote right now? Please. So my mother recently broke her wrist and had to have surgery. And so as part of the surgery, they numbed the entire arm from the shoulder down to her fingers. And as she described it to me the other day, this was just about a week or two ago, she was sitting at home after the surgery. The surgery went fine. She's going to be fine. But her arm lifted itself for no reason whatsoever and turned its hand toward her face and started like clenching its fingers <laughs> at her. So I was like, Oh my God, you're in the Evil Dead too, Mom. Uh, but uh, when I watched the Web Planet again the other day, that was immediately what I thought of when Barbara's arm started leading her out of the TARDIS. What what the heck were the Optera? Well, they're part of the same race, but because they've been living underground for so long, they don't grow their wings or know the culture. I was thinking they were like a larval form of Monoptera that just never formed a chrysalis. And became a monoptera, so they were just kind of stuck in this. Because they they seem to have a much more lower tech, almost Stone Age kind of society. Yeah, not to go too deep into it, but there's there's some kind of assumptions about culture that are based in biology in here that uh, could probably be teased out a little bit. Like the optera uh, don't reach their full potential because they live underground and they don't have wings. The zarbi are angry and mean because the animus has made them militant mm-hmm. is what the monoptera says it's like the osama bin laden of zarbi extremists of what happened but that's not actually what happens it's the animus takes over their minds completely yeah convince them of the rightness of its cause. yeah yeah this this brings up a a question you know to me in my head canon the zarbi are not intelligent they are literally just like animal level intelligence. That's what it seems to be. That, that other outside forces occasionally come in and manipulate them somehow. Well, if like, you forget where you put your web planet notes like I did and are forced to rely on memory and Wikipedia, you will find out <laughs> that supposedly the Monoptra are supposed to represent free enterprise and the Zarbi communism. Oh. So they are the hive mind, the one mind, if you will. I disagree with that. Yeah, I don't know. If we're going in this direction, there's a whole Jungian psychoanalytic thing that could be done about it because the animus is, of course, a term from Jungian psychology. The animus is the unconscious masculine side of a woman, just like the anima is the unconscious feminine side of a man. So when the monoptera are talking about you have to attack the dark side of the animus, there's like a whole lot of post-Freudian psychology stuff going on there. Yeah, I don't think it's 
taken very far, <laughs> but it's. It you think that ties into um, the whole scene where Ian's pants almost fall down near the acid pit when he takes his belt off? Well, and his phallic pen that disappears, of course. Yep. Absolutely. And, and, and his tie gets partly destroyed. Ooh. That's a phallic symbol. Emasculated by the, the doctor. Very, in the very feminine pit of liquid. Yeah. Isn't every pit of liquid feminine? Kelvin. <laughs> well, we could talk about the, the gender of the various races too. The Zarbi don't have any obvious gender. The animus is very strange and androgynous, I thought. Like the voice is not particularly feminine or masculine. The Monoptera are all kind of fae. And the Optera are Tom Waits, of course, as you say. Yeah. Except for that poor Optera girl who sacrifices her life by sticking her head in the hole to prevent the acid from pouring out. One of the like, most horrifying scenes in early Hartnell, I thought. See, I always made the assumption that the Zarbi were male and that there was like a queen ant thing somewhere, which you get into when, well, spoilers. Yeah, when we talk about the Zarbi supreme, uh, yes. right. <laughs> yeah, it, it depends on, you know, how ant-like you think the Zarbi are. Are they like... You know, literally just big ants, or are they just some alien creature that's superficially ant-like? Yeah, the doctor splits the difference there. He explains to Ian that, I think it's something like, the best analogy we could have would be for Earth insects. What the heck were the la uh, larva guns? I love those guys. I are, are, they, are they like literally just animals they bred to shoot rays? That's what I want to believe. <laughs> this is your purpose. It was very upsetting to me when they smooshed that one little larva gun yeah. on the wall, like Josh was describing. But it's like, it's like way overbreeding a dog, so they can only do one thing. It's adorable when Barbara is petting one and playing with one at the oh. end. I love that. Yeah, yeah, because the Zarbi who is under their control during the second half is very adorable. It just sort of follows them around like a dog as well. Yeah, so says, uh, I'm getting very fond of Zarbo, uh, the lost Marks brother. Zarbo Marks. <laughs> I think the charm wears off about halfway through this in that you get acclimated to the unique costumes and characterizations and they split up the regulars who always shine when they get to interact with each other. So when Barbara and Ian have to go off with their rather bland Monoptra characters, that's hard to say. Nothing much exciting happens in those scenes for fun dialogue or, or, or character stuff. But I love the first episode just to hear the conversations between Barbara and Vicky about primitive earth medicine and all the super sexual acid pit tie talk we've already mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> but specifically, I love when the doctor says to Ian, when Ian expresses the concern that well, my pants are going to fall down. That, that's your affair, my boy. <laughs> the first episode, too, is only the main cast, which is something that they did pretty frequently during this period and continue to do even up to uh, the arc in space that might be the last one. But it was fairly common during this period to just have the TARDIS crew in the first episode before they meet people, even in the chase, which we'll talk about later. It's only the TARDIS crew and some random Daleks wandering around. So there's a lot of, I think, fun character interaction that we all enjoy seeing, even as even as trivial as it seems. Like, 
would today in 2022, you script a four minute conversation about how I don't want to take some aspirin, Barbara? Probably not. But here it is in 1965. This is what is on television because you have to fill those 22 and a half minutes. I spent a lot of time on Web Planet, which I had a lot of time to fill in, staring at Vicky and and then watching her again in the chase and realizing that once again, like Nissa, we're supposed to think she's a child because she has pigtails, right? This is what makes her a child because the child actresses, I mean, she's got to be like what, 27 well, or something. She's older than Sarah I mean, was, yeah. that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wondered why they couldn't instead have hired a 17-year-old, but. Well, even Susan was like a young woman with a child of her own when she was cast. Yeah, Vicky's fun. I think she's, uh, Maureen O'Brien is a pretty fun actor, but she's called upon to do some childish things that are are maybe not entirely deliverable for somebody. <laughs> she, but, and also when the, the animus is invading her mind, she kind of looks like she's just lost a contact lens. She's kind of squinting and <laughs> which is, which she's doing the thing around the TARDIS with her arms waving. That's like on the, the bridge of the enterprise when they're <laughs> under attack by the Klingons. It's pretty silly. It all looks like somebody swearing that they're still in touch with their inner child and, and their inner child has gone off to join the lost boys a long time ago <laughs> you can't really blame her for like that tardis scene though because how do you do that the tardis is being dragged by ants giant ants make that play somehow although i will say the external shot of that is quite strange and cool the little jerky motions as the little tardis model is being scooted across the landscape by the ants was Strangely effective. Like I, I went, there are ants pushing that TARDIS. <laughs> yeah. And both in this one and in the chase, the TARDIS looks so much like my salt and pepper shaker TARDIS that I used to create that whole story montage when I was in London a while back. Well, actually, I went to Ace's hometown to Perryvale and I shot this whole series of uh, supposed Doctor Who adventure using these salt and pepper TARDIS shakers. And I was like, oh, this is so nerdy. And then I turned this on and I went, look, it's my salt and pepper shakers. <laughs> But honestly, I loved some of the like model work in both of these two. Like I sometimes I'd rather see the thing that's being manipulated than feel like they're trying to trick me with an effect and failing. Yeah, there's no convincing going on in this episode. This is suggesting what what the story is about, not trying to make you believe that there's a giant Titanic in space or something. There are a number of pointless cliffhangers in this too, as it gets toward the end, like the one where the doctor and Vicky are sprayed with some kind of web that looks pretty impressive for the cliffhanger. And then we cut back to the final episode and it appears to just cause some mild skin irritation. And it was just almost like a pointless hazing on the part of the animus or it it didn't appear to do anything (laughs) to them. I think it's the suggestion is that it's very cold because Hartnell is like, his teeth are chattering and he is like stammering his words in a, in a different way than. <laughs> okay. Thanks uh, for clarifying. <laughs> uh, does his stuff. Uh, but yeah, no, and the web shooter on the wall is like super creepy and gross. And I think that just wanted to get some more use out of it, but also, yeah, you get the sense that this is six episodes and no one really knew in the first draft exactly where the cliffhangers were supposed to exist. So they just kind of invented some stuff to end an episode and start a new one. Like most six-part Doctor Who stories, it didn't really need to be six episodes long. 
It didn't. And we can talk about pacing, I think, when yeah. we do the final summing up, because the chase is also going to be another six episode one. But and final thoughts on uh, the Web of Fear? I mean, web planet. That's a, I have totally different opinions on oh the God. Web of Fear. Yes, right. Web this, web that, web the other thing. Oh, my goodness. Web it all. The Web Planner is what we've just talked about. And basically, this is like ambient soundscape stuff to me like i could put this on and just have it in the background and exist and watch it and enjoy it and it it makes me feel good and i i don't have to it doesn't ask you to engage with it in any serious way mentally emotionally if you haven't seen a first doctor story yet uh do not start with this one if you have insomnia and you are looking (laughs) for lullaby this is a pretty good one well, the soothing voice of Lamanatra. I mean, I would just like someone to come into my bedroom when I'm having trouble sleeping. It, it does sound like an app you'd have on your phone. Nice nap. Animus. All right, next up, we've got round three, a discussion of the story of the lair of the Zarbi Supremo, written by David Whitaker. I had so much fun with this, you guys. I enjoyed this so much. I normally hate listening to like audiobooks. I get very distracted by other things. But this was like every better version of some pulp story about a boy and his savior that I I ever listened to. And it moved so fast. I think because it takes place where Web Planet takes place. But it, it, it moves. It moves. It moves quickly. And the story is told. And then it is done. And... And I think my brain was contrasting that immediately to Web Planet. So I had lots and lots of fun with this story. What about you guys? Yeah, so it's from the 1966 Doctor Who Annual. Among other things, it refers to the Doctor as Doctor Who, which is a pretty common thing for the kids' printed material from that era. And David Whitaker, who wrote this, uh, was a script editor and writer for uh, early Doctor Who. He had written the Dalek Invasion of Earth, among other things, although he hadn't written The Web Planet. But I thought was interesting about this is that he kind of recycled a lot of televised Doctor Who stuff into this. um, It's a short story. It's about one hour in audio form written by William Russell, who played Ian in the version that I think that we listened to. But he talks, among other things, about uh, Vortis being a rogue planet under a power an engine in the center of the planet moving it across the universe which is something he borrowed from his own dalek invasion of earth from just the previous year and the doctor and the boy hide inside a zarbi robot the same way that uh, the doctor did in the very first dalek story back in 1963 so, by the way, who built the Zarbi robots? Did the Zarbi build the Zarbi robots? With well, they little, found the Natras inside the Zarbis, yeah, right? They yeah. found some dead ones in there. So I kind of assumed that they built it. And the then maybe they got too hot inside it in their furry mothy bodies. And Yeah, the Monoptra built them. They were oh. Trojan Zarbi <laughs> okay. to come invade and see what's going on with the uh, Zarbi Supremo, <laughs> which is also my favorite burrito at Taco Bell. I'm just going <laughs> to put that out there. It, surely it should be Zarbi Supreme, uh, right? It's a queen Zarbi. And uh, although even the Monoptera misgender it, they call it him. 
maybe it's not Spanish or Italian. Maybe it's just <laughs> the Zarbi language. It's directly I'm... translated from the Zarbi. <laughs> no, it's funny. I am too used to more complicated ideas than this story. So I was waiting for like the boy to be a trap or for mm-hmm. um, all these like sneaky things that didn't need to happen in an hour long, you know, probably what that would have been like 10 or 11 pages, really little adventure. But I kind of kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I ended up going back and listening to it a second time just so I could like listen to it for the romp that it was. There is one shoe. Okay. The Earthmen yes. now to be colonialist exploiters, imperialist resource extractors. And as soon as they're freed, they're like, yeah, we came here to like just find like people that we can put the boot into and steal their minerals and stuff. And now we're going to shoot our weapons at the Monoptera. And the doctor's like, <gasps> and then the <laughs> airlift him out of there and then we're gone. Oh boy, I don't know. I, I had to kind of keep reminding myself that this was clearly written for kids. You know, it's a, it's a very not deep kind of story. It's it's just, you know, Doctor Who versus Ant Monsters. And, yeah, and the climax is just like they keep shooting the Zarbi Supremo until it dies. <laughs> Which is great. The Doctor is actually just keep shooting everywhere. He's <laughs> like, he, he starts listing body parts to aim at until he's basically constructed the entirety of the Zarbi Queen thing. It's like... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Shoot the abdomen, shoot the thorax, shoot the <laughs> just shoot the whole damn thing. Well, you're right, Calvin. Of course, it's nothing but trivial kid stuff, but it, it does weirdly feel like it has Cold War anxieties behind it because the Zarbi stuff. Yeah, know how much they might say that they're a communist analog. Uh, we referred to last episode. Yeah, yeah no, they they do fit into that that sort of stereotype that you know they were all emotionless people like single-mindedly working on one goal and you know for me that feels like a fascist fascist analog just as easily as a communist one especially in the context of 1965 and yeah once you you defeat the fascist ants then all of a sudden oh well now you're imperialist exploiters and you're a little bit more skeptical of the militarized people who won the second world war if you're in an English child or a David Whitaker, a left-leaning person writing stories. Yeah, and I, and I, well, and I was also rather annoyed that Vortis is just in the solar system for some reason. And, and they, and they literally just kind of say like, yeah, I don't know. You know, we, I don't know how uh, earth's observers have missed this for <laughs> centuries, uh, but it's here. And, yeah. I guess the very supreme just put an engine in the planet and that. I mean, that's a pretty remarkable feat of stellar engineering, if you ask me. And so I don't know why he's going around pirate planeting other places when he could probably... Especially when you consider, you know, it, you know, again, it's very unclear how intelligent the Zarbi are. I mean, I think they're... I always thought they were just animal intelligences, and then, like, the Zarbi Supremo is some mutant super Zarbi. It's got to be the Animus, right? Who's taken over, like, a Zarbi queen? yeah. Or has somehow directed evolution because they kept bringing that up, that this was sort of this final evolutionary evil state of the Zarbi or at least one evil path that evolution took, which again brings you back to the animus. Uh, Speaking of things that annoyed you, the only thing actually that annoyed me in this episode were the metaphors that didn't need to be metaphors. I don't know if anybody else caught these, but there were two that really stuck out in particular. At one point, the Monoptera get hurt, and it's like a moth caught in a flame. They shriveled. Well, (laughs) 
they're moths. I mean, yes, they, they shrivel <laughs> like, like moths because they were moths. And then when the Zarbi <laughs> Suprema gets shot, it staggered as though in agony. <laughs> right. I mean, no, it was actually really happy, but it it jig looked a lot like it hurt. Perhaps so, it doesn't have. Um, right. There, there were just a number of these throughout the stories where I was like, no, wait, no, that that's not a metaphor. That's what's happening. Guys. <laughs> what's going on? Whenever I get shot, I just start laughing. I mean, <laughs> there's laughing as though in agony. Laughing as though. Finding things funny. Yeah, there's a lot of dead language within uh, David Whitaker's little story. I mean, I'm not going to beat the shit out of the guy for it. <laughs> I mean, this is a tiny little thing that he wrote for kids. No, let's dig him up. Let's pull his body out of the robot Zarby and kick <laughs> it around. Let's beat him over the head with his own shin bone like Mark Twain <laughs> wanted to do to. Oh, the guy who wrote Last of the Mohicans. Anyway, moving on. Some of the like cliches sort of like inadvertently reveal suggestions about what the doctor is for one thing it's expressed that english is his native language yeah at some point that is said about the doctor english is his native language the doctor on his mother's side (laughs) validates the tv movie yeah yeah. early canonicity there josh um also he thinks that fate has directed him to vortis so the doctor has an interior life and he thinks about fate Fate has directed him here. He also pants in excitement early in the story and later writhes in excitement when one of the <laughs> is murdered. And so I'm not going to go too far down that direction. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. The Monoptera also know about the duck because we're, we're not sure where this takes place in relation to the web planet, but it's clearly that exists enough in mythological time that the Monoptera know the doctor as quote, a strange, immortal human who can flit in and out of all the ages. So first they think he's human, but they also think he's immortal, which is something that hadn't actually been established on the TV show, but someone has been thinking in terms of replacing William Hartnell going forward at that point, and David Whitaker knows Hmm. about it. This is pre-any regeneration. Why would they think he's immortal? I don't know. The viewers of the TV show wouldn't necessarily know that. Well, if you're a time traveler and you keep going to the same planet in an ongoing sequence of events that are centuries apart from each other, I mean, you might, I, w- I, would, I would think it would be logical to think you're like just the same guy and you just live that long. Joshua, you've been very, very quiet over there. Have we I? That or we have been very, very loud. But I often think <laughs> of you... As as one of the most uh, excited, childlike, full of wonder voices in the room, and and <gasps> I want to step forward and say you've been too quiet, my friend, and and you should have words if you have words. The words I have is I found it surprisingly entertaining for child pulp material. Like you said, it just moved, and I like some of these early, slightly darker takes on Doctor Who, where he's just takes a boy out into this field of aliens and finds a robot with dead bodies in it. And he's like, just tear the dead body out, boy, and climb in. (laughs) You'll figure it out. And sequences where the ants, the legion of ants come swarming down and they just get carried away is a really great sequence. It's exciting. It's something you couldn't ever pull off in the TV show. 
so I think since Whitaker is so experienced with the TV show, he's clearly having fun writing on this scale. He knows he could never pull off visually on the screen. And I love the twist as Pat already mentioned, where the Earthmen, who they spend the entire time trying to rescue, just want to turn around and murder everybody and rape the planet. And the doctor's like, whoops. <laughs> He's not a human. He forgets what humans are like. So I was really pleased by that twist. And that may have elevated it in my opinion. I'm not as jaded as Kelvin is, clearly. <laughs> Yeah, I'm the jaded one all of a sudden. (laughs) Okay, next up, we're going to discuss the season two story, The Chase. Uh, This is another First Doctor story that has uh, a, shall we say, mixed reputation with uh, many people. Uh, it was written by Terry Nation, creator of the Daleks, and it does, of course, feature the Daleks, and it was directed by Richard Martin. I just want to go ahead and say that on one level, this is what I always kind of wanted to see in a Doctor Who story or, or any kind of uh, science fiction type story. Was that because it's set in multiple things? Like It was always weird for me, like when the Doctor would go in the TARDIS, then they'd go to just one place and then just stay there for four episodes and then leave. Like I I always wanted to see the TARDIS jump around in the middle of the story. And of course the reasons for that are practical. You know, it was expensive to do, you know, and you have to build a whole new sets and everything. So I always kind of wanted to see that, but of course each uh, place you jump to needs to be uh, interesting (laughs) (laughs) and well done. And uh, the chase is kind of, Half and half that way, I think. Mixed in that regard, probably. Yeah. Like, paradoxically, I found that the really science fiction-y parts, like, the least interesting and the most annoying. Whereas the stuff that's much more uh, practical and everyday, like, I like the Mary Celeste part. I like the Empire State Building part, kind of. Okay, the admittedly... I, Western accent ever. He's supposed to be from Alabama, and he's wearing a cowboy hat, and he's doing some sort of weird mutant cowboy thing. We'll talk about Peter Purvis later, yeah. Okay, and this is the one that always gets picked on, but I am kind of weirdly fond of the haunted house thing. Well, well, for a few reasons. One, the first Doctor era is the era that seems to best fit with like a haunted house type story. And then there's just this dumb little kid thing of like, it's a Dalek and it's fighting Frankenstein's monster. You know, and it's like literally like just a thing you would play with like random action figures you owned as a kid and they're like smacking each other and stuff. Um, so I, I kind of had a weird thrill for that. And it's it's also kind of weirdly progressive for the era because it's uh, part of a near future festival in Ghana. Canceled by Peking. Canceled by Peking. Kelvin, if I could interject an anecdote there. Yeah. Uh, if you guys remember, we, we've talked about on this program a few times, the author Kim Newman, the British author Kim Newman, who uh, has written quite a number of books over the years, uh, including a long series of books called Anno Dracula, uh, about an alternate world where Dracula takes over England. And so it's an alternate history thing stretching from the late 1900s until the present day. Well, at some point, Kim Newman mentioned that this version of Dracula 
in the chase was probably the very first Dracula he had ever seen because he watched it when he was a little bit less than six years old on its original airing. And so remembered vaguely that there was like somebody called Dracula that maybe his parents might've mentioned, but this was the first televisual Dracula he had ever seen and now has made a remarkably long career out of it. So out of tiny little scenes, big- It is is very much (laughs) the sort of kids show roots of Doctor Who really come out here. This is a- you know, it's very much a, a kid's kind of perception of Dracula and Frankenstein. You know, Dracula just shows up and goes, I am Dracula. And then people are like, ah! You know, like, <laughs> he's well-dressed and elegant. Ah! You know, <laughs> um, you know just, it's just kind of hard. You know, it's kind of funny to see people being just actively scared of a guy dressed like the, you know, classic Dracula, but... But it's played for laughs. I think it's a little arch, right? There's the great scene where the doctor wants to go take a look at the body. He doesn't quite realize yet it's Frankenstein's monster. They realize what it is, and Hartnell just dashes up those stairs. (laughs) I I like it a lot. I like the tonal incongruities in it. I like how it swings wildly from farcical elements to Doctor Who's, I think, first and only infant death on screen. (laughs) The the woman jumps out of the Mary Celeste, shaking her baby. She's like kind of cooing to it, clearly lying, telling the thing it's going to be okay. I don't know. I'm filling in this whole horrid backstory with it. but (laughs) It's a strange moment in that otherwise um, really wacky scene of everyone jumping off the Mary Celeste. No, I spotted that as well. And I, I, I was literally being in the middle of just this fantastical romp, horrified, absolutely horrified that they had allowed that image to be on there. I just thought, oh, God, if I was, you know, eight or nine and saw that, I, I think I would find that really traumatizing. Yeah. I think it gets allowed in because there's a lot in the chase that is still kind of the original educational purpose of Doctor Who bubbling up from the background. We've got Lincoln doing the Gettysburg Address. We have Shakespeare talking to Queen Elizabeth I with some relatively sophisticated dialogue about the real life of Sir John Falstaff. Plus also things that kids would have learned about at school, like the height of the Empire State Building, the highest building (laughs) in the world. Did you guys see the version that has the tiny clip of the Beatles in it? My DVD does not have it. The American DVD doesn't have it. I have a uh, um, bootleg. But, um, you know, it has the Beatles clip in it. And that is apparently the only surviving video footage of that Beatles show. Yep. Mm -hmm. And and it's just there to make, like, the weird uh, joke of Vicky saying, like, oh, why are you listening to classical music? (laughs) Uh, And... There was going to be a bit where they show up and run into the Beatles as very old men, which in retrospect was probably a wise thing they didn't do. <laughs> they were going to be playing a reunion concert in the 21st century as... Yeah, something like that, yeah. You know, that- I have to say that, like, thinking, for example, about Vicky's comment about it being classical music, I think this episode is far more clever than than people give it. Like, mm-hmm. yes, it's, it's an absolutely ridiculous romp, but... Instead of them running into Dracula and Frankenstein, they go to this tourist museum thing, you know, instead of just them going to the Empire State's building, 
the guy who thinks he sees them like gets arrested and taken away and may spend the rest of his life in a padded cell. You know, the Mary Celeste, I think, is really clever because it's an actual mystery that's never been solved. So I, I actually thought the choices for this madcap dash through time were really clever. Um, I also think the haunted house, I'm still carrying on about the haunted house, sorry, (laughs) but there's also that clever bit where they're poking fun at high concept science fiction with the doctor claiming, oh, we've ended up in some reservoir of human imagination. And it turns out to just be an old haunted house. And And Ian's like, "Mm, I think there's a simpler answer. Like he's getting a premonition of the mind robber. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. confident the Daleks won't be able to land there because it's some alternate dimension. Oops. The only like technical lapse thing in the story that really bugged me was um, the Dalek getting wrecked on the Mary Celeste, (laughs) where it like literally falls apart before it hits the water. (laughs) You know, it's like just shoved into the water and it goes, wah! (laughs) Can we talk about the Daleks for a minute? Because, oh, yeah. Any amount of stairs in this episode? The stairs, like Terry Nation uh, was apparently unhappy about like the humorous take on the Daleks in this adventure. And I can see why, because the Daleks are just totally garbage in all of the chases. This is only their third appearance on TV. This is very contemporary with the Peter Cushing movie, um, the original Doctor Who versus the Daleks, but they're totally hapless. Like there's the ridiculous scene of the Dalek getting eaten by the giant fungus guy, which I could just, it has to be a gif out there somewhere of the Dalek getting eaten by the giant fungus guy. But also there's the, the yes man Dalek, who's just like, yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> Then, is he the Dalek that, that does math in his head, too, when they ask him a question? He's like, I'm on 24 over 36. Or, 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 or one minute. <laughs> but, like, the guy who's like, yes, 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 just stands there after it, and his boss has to be like, well, get to it then. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, the, the guy who falls off the Mary Celeste who goes, yeah. The dogs are very Keystone Cops like here, yeah. Or my favorite is the cliffhanger to episode one, and the Dalek is coming out of the sand, and he's making these old man getting up from a chair sounds. (laughs) He's like, "Mm." (laughs) even like a metafictional commentary on it because Peter Purvis, as as Morton Gill on the Empire State Building, is talking about all of the TARDIS crew coming out of the TARDIS as like the trick of a long string of police cars coming out of a tiny wooden shed, which would just be like a Hollywood thing or a, mm. or a vaudeville thing. But it's exactly the same technique they used for the Daleks a few episodes earlier, because they only have like four models of the Daleks and they're pushing them through the little exit way and then waiting a few moments and then they're coming on again. So it's the same string of Daleks going over and over again, trying to pretend that there's more than four props. So it's very self-conscious. The entire show is very self-conscious about its own position as the third Dalek story doing a comedic version of it. And yet, despite all of the comedy in this, I was struck by what it would be like. This is the first Doctor. We haven't been introduced to regeneration yet for a giant fan of the show to see the death of Doctor Who. Yeah. Like, even to see that as the title of the episode, let alone not being 100% sure who's going to get shot or who gets shot, 
I mean, if I hadn't known there were going to be, you know, 13, 14 more doctors, I would have been quaking in my boots. I would have been super upset. Yeah, we haven't even really talked about the doctor replicant yet. And I want to piggyback on some of the things that Pat said about being so self-aware. And I can't, because the episode is so so self-aware that it's hard to tell where some of that self-awareness ends and where some of the humor is just production gaffes. But two moments, one with the replicant where they just show this clear shot of a man who is absolutely not William Hartnell with Vicky's voice over the top of it, or it's Adele. I can't remember someone saying, they are absolutely identical. And you're like, no, not in the slightest are they identical. And then there's another moment just like it when the doctor and the gang and the mechanoids get off the elevator and they look at the mechanoid city and they say, it's huge. And they cut to this tiny miniature shot. And it's like, it's the exact opposite of huge. It is the tiniest looking thing you've ever seen. So I'm, I'm, halfway believe due to some of the other humor in there that maybe there was an editor with a sense of humor in those moments. And I have to think that there are some behind the scenes production issues that resulted in those ridiculous shots of the replicant doctor who doesn't look like the doctor. Yeah. If I had to guess, I would assume that it was absolutely straight on the part of Terry nation and on the actors and then was later ironized by the production staff. <laughs> like we right, will be ironized yeah. <laughs> right out of the gate when you see the the daleks they have this whole conversation very mellow conversation by dalek standards by the way but they're like hey we're going to exterminate 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 and then it goes into this really jaunty lounge music with the <laughs> and that sets the tone for the entire thing that music is similar throughout all six episodes you can take nothing seriously when you hear that music yeah it's very charming a lot of it reminds me of like the star trek original series shore leave music i don't know if that was meant to just lighten it for the children in the audience but i don't think even the action on the screen would be too hard to take for them no i think it i think it's somebody deliberately taking the piss well, it, it does have one of the more weirdly action-oriented first doctor moments when he when he fights the replicant it's, it's just kind of weird to see Hartnell suddenly being a man of action like that. Just wait until he crawls inside a giant ant. <laughs> <laughs> I have to imagine that Hartnell was supposed to be in the studio for some of those close-up shots that they used the double for. And he just wasn't available and they just had to shoot with the stunt double who was probably there for over-the-shoulder shots and fight scenes. Yeah. Because they switch back and forth. Sometimes it's Hartnell stepping in as his doppelganger. And other times it's this much taller, thinner, not at all Hartnell looking guy. Well, much like they're not at all Lincoln looking guy. I mean, maybe they just said, if we can't find someone that looks like them, let's go the other way. What if it was the same guy playing Lincoln and he just contractually, they needed to give him one more <laughs> role? <laughs> What I've been able to dig up from the internet is that the guy who played the robot duplicate of Hartnell was the stand-in for William Hartnell in the Dalek invasion of Earth in scenes that Hartnell couldn't do because he had uh, hurt himself in some way. And this was kind of like, a, oh, hey, come back and do some other stuff. But a lot of it is just you don't know what sort of production element forced that to happen. 
right? Uh, as you say, Josh, was uh, Hartnell just not there at the time? Could they not get the right camera angle to just do the over-the-shoulder shot? Because they had a very limited time to film all this stuff, and they have to film 24 and a half minutes or whatever it is per episode, and they can't really go back to reshoots, or the union is going to turn off the lights at 10 o'clock at night, so they kind of get what they have to do. So a lot of the stuff with early Doctor Who is not, why did they make this aesthetic choice? It's kind of like, why did this practical element force this to get to the screen instead of something mm-hmm. else getting to the screen? Uh, there's this sort of retroactive meta commentary you can do with this, though, in that, ironically, Hartnell is going to be the doctor who's going to be recast twice as actors in the future of Doctor Who that look nothing like him. And maybe they they well, were just so getting us ready for... And in the most recent Doctor Who, the guy from Harry Potter is spot on. I thought I thought he looked just great. Like I pulled up pictures of the two side by side and like I was really impressed with him as a as a double for for Hartnell. I thought he did a really good acting job. Um, yeah, And maybe that's <laughs> just it. Maybe it was so good that the, the illusion was cast. But I thought he looked quite a bit like him as well. Maybe I'll go back and look and be like, illusion oh, well, shattered. But. It was not so much that I'm criticizing the other actors who played the first Doctor, but they are other actors doing their own take on the character. And they're approximating Hartnell's tics and body language and voice in the same way this... Dalek replicant was. And so I found myself really like willing to buy a alternate Hartnell watching the chase after seeing all these other actors play the doctor in a way we haven't seen any other doctor be recast visually. They have been recast in audio, but not on the screen. That's how I fixed it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think any fixing is necessary really. I, I, even by season two of Doctor Who, they're willing to self-parody. I don't know, maybe it was lost along the way in Doctor Who. There's the occasional adventure here that's more of a comic adventure now and then. I'm thinking of stuff like Love and Monsters in the Russell T. Davies era. But this is essentially the same elements as a normal Terry Nation story, but done in a kind of ridiculous way. It was not unintentional. They did it to be funny. They had the jaunty lounge music. They had the fun montage of Ian and Barbara on the bus at the end, which is very charming and always gets me in the, in the feelings. Oh, it always does. It's fantastic. Also the whole departure with the first doctor is great in that he goes into the Dalek ship with them to set the controls and they don't let you, in with them so we don't ever get to hear what they actually said to one another we do get them saying you know goodbye from far away wherever you are doctor but it's not the same and not getting to hear that is actually i think more emotional than any scene you would have been able to get out of this episode of doctor who particularly how silly it had been up to there and so the fact that it can be self-parroting and satirical but then still managed to deliver some emotional weight at the end i think is an impressive feat his anger that they were leaving tugged my heartstrings far more than an emotional manipulation in that moment would have than tears and and regret in a close-up of him sighing and saying oh humans they're here so briefly you know his anger actually 
made me more of a clamped than any of that would have. Because he was so upset because they could end up like cinders in Spain. <laughs> <laughs> well, true. And also, Ian and Barbara were the very first people we met on Doctor Who. I think even possibly before Susan in the initial flashbacks. So th- this is the continuity of the show is going right now. Susan has already left, but even before we had met her in the first episode of An Unearthly Child, we met Ian and Barbara. So they're gone now, and now it's a completely different kind of thing. Uh, But before we leave the chase, I do want to mention Stephen a little bit, who uh, apparently the only reason we have Peter Purvis as Stephen is that he had been rejected as a Monoptera in the web planet, and then later recast as this Alabamian Morton Gill on the Empire State Building in episode three. And apparently Maureen O'Brien and William Hartnell liked him enough that they decided to cast him as the new companion. And of course, it starts to break the mold of the family structure. Before this point, we had the grandfather, the kind of mother and father and the little girl or teenage girl. And then when they swapped out Susan, they swapped in Vicky. But now we generate the young man and young woman and the doctor archetype that will kind of dominate the rest of the 1960s. And I should also mention that Stephen is my wife's favorite companion because he has the stuffed panda hi-fi, who not only does he insist on introducing to all of the TARDIS cast, but goes back for when the mechanoid city is blowing up and rushes into danger to save the stuffed panda, which is like something Paul Mars would write an entire novel series about. (laughs) Well, he spent two years alone with that damn panda. Absolutely. Yeah, I would go back for it too, man. One of the last things I want to say about the chase is I love the more abstract fight sequences between the Daleks and the Mechanoids at the end. (laughs) I think that's fantastic because you can't impress us with your limited studio time and these robot bodies just bumping against each other. So why not just take a bunch of shots and clearly they're going to have more time editing than they are to shoot it. And it's far more effective this way. I actually believed I wasn't sure exactly the, whether it was linear or what, exactly what happened, but I believed an epic battle took place and it was really fun to watch. I agree. I think they were planning on using the mechanoids again, but they never really did because the, the mechanoids were too hard to use. Really clunky for the actor inside. Apparently the, the manipulators of them like had a real hard time with them. Like that. Apparently they couldn't fit through doors. Look at them. I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, and when you you know you don't really see them do much of anything. It's more m- mobile camera stuff making them look like they're doing things. There's that hilarious shot when they first get in the elevator with the mechanoid, and the elevator goes up, and they just let them all like you would in an elevator stand there awkwardly together because <laughs> the mechanoid is huge, and the three of them are pressed up against the back of the elevator. Maybe it was only funny to me. I just laughed hysterically. Yep, just funny to me. (laughs) (laughs) So, hey, 
for our last round, what about final thoughts about these two William Hartnell adventures that have bad reputations, plus also Zarbi Supremo? The more I think about it and the more I think about when these came out, and of course I am watching these now in you know, 2022, which is really unfair because in 1965, you know, seeing this may have had a totally different reaction, but I can only judge it as, as a girl of, of my age and of this age and say that I think that Web Planet absolutely deserves this reputation of being snoozy and that the chase does not. I think that in my opinion, anybody who harps on the chase um, takes themselves and the show too seriously and uh, should enjoy the fact that this show is going to go on to do some interesting and brave and bold things, which includes laughing at itself. And I think that's super important. How about you, Kelvin? What do you think? If you're new to the first Doctor era, I, I would not start with these two stories. I I do not think they're as, as bad as, as people say. I think there are plenty of worse first Doctor stories than these two. However, I, I think it could be fairly described, uh, both of them, as, as uneven. Both have their high points and both have some fairly low points. I agree with you, Kelvin, in that these are not gateway Doctor Who stories in any way, shape, or form. No. <laughs> um, but as a fan, I would have to say that I think the web planet is underappreciated in certain areas, particularly the attempts at visual variety, the sets, the costumes. There was some ambition that I feel should be recognized more, but ultimately I do think elements of it fall apart. And I totally understand people thinking it's pretty dull. However, the chase to me does not deserve its bad reputation. I think it's a case of people watching it the wrong way. I'm just going to say it. That's right. <laughs> it, it's so playful. It's so intentionally playful. I can see it not being your taste, but I don't think it deserves this reputation as a poorly put together episode of Doctor Who. Um, for all the reasons we already mentioned, it's a delight from top to bottom, in my humble opinion. Yeah, so I love both of these very much irrespective of their merits, I think. Uh, I think you guys have covered the good and bad about what's positive and negative about the chase and the web planet. But for me, it's simply an enjoyable experience. It's kind of like existing in a ambient universe of 1960s-ness to me. So I don't judge it on the same criteria that I would judge, say, modern television. The only thing that I would really criticize about either of these episodes, uh, these adventures, is the one thing that grates on me is Hartnell's constant mistakes. That does get to me. I, if I could change one thing about this whole era of Doctor Who, I would do that. It's, it takes me out of the show to have him constantly fluffing and having Ian and Barbara constantly having to correct his lines and move the story on. But beyond that, I love both the web planet and the chase. the chase. Thank you. I love them so much. Bad reputation, whatever. We've all got bad reputations. So until next time, I'm Joshua. I'm Kelvin. I'm Ariel. And I'm Pat. And we're saying, get, get off my world. I get why web planet's got a bad reputation.
It's boring as heck as there's no evading. It's setup is a sleepy stew. Its excitement is scarce and few. And only moth cosplay causes titillation. It's true. Ooh, ooh. But I think the chase deserves a better reputation. Yes, it's utterly ridiculous. There's no escaping. There's Robot, Drac, and Frankenstein, but the silliness is totally fine. No, I wasn't filled with a lot of frustration this time. So Zarbi Suprema, what's the story's reputation? It's never been filmed, you use your imagination. It's total bee pulp and full of camp. It's got the doctor in a robot ant. It might be fun with a lot of libation. It's true. All Whovians got a lot of opinions around which episodes are worth the seeing. But all that really matters to me is I don't fall asleep while watching TV. So embracing the ridiculous is totally freeing this time. But we're gonna talk about the reputations. That's the point of our podcast, there's no mistaking. We all argue with good spirits if it's plungers up or plungers dip. In the end, it's only playful aggravation. It's true. Ooh, 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 ooh.